This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the JavaScript Jabber, uh, episode 162. Today on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. Dave Smith. Hey, everybody. Amy Knight. Hello. And I'm Joe Eames, your host. And as our very special guest today, we have Jamin Ferguson. Hey! <laughs> awesome. Well, that's the most excited guest I think we've ever had. Everybody say hey! <laughs> Are you waving your hands in the air like you just don't care? A little bit. Non-stop. So, Jamin, we are here to talk about ESLint. Could you give us a little bit of uh, background about yourself and your involvement with ESLint? Oh, thanks so much. I am a JavaScript programmer. I've been programming JavaScript for a couple of years now. And for some reason, I care a lot about things being consistent. And I care a lot about catching dumb mistakes. And Lint or tools like JS Hint and ESLint help us catch those mistakes pretty easily. So I became a fan of Linter's a couple years ago, and I was working at a company called Odesk. I was working remotely from Utah, and I worked with a, a big remote team. And I was kind of a UI architect, and so I'd build all these components for all the teams across the world to use. And you know, people would be working on them, and I'd want to try to find ways to enforce code quality. And at the time, I believe we were using JS Lint, and we upgraded to JS Hint, which added more flexibility. But I was really searching for a better way to enforce standards across large code base, to enforce a whole bunch of different rules, to provide custom rules that just made sense for our team. And so I initially was really trying to understand how to improve JS Hint and add additional rules, but it was a really complicated process. And so when Nicholas Zakis came out a couple years ago now with ESLint, which was this great tool for helping look at JavaScript, I got really excited and started contributing right away. Why is it called Lint? Besides, <laughs> did you get it out of a dryer? Yeah, I mean, basically. I actually have no idea. I think there's this sort of historical 
source of these tools that have been, there, there's the Lint program, I believe, for C that was invented probably in the 60s, 70s. And it's just been around forever, the linting. And then there was really the first linter, though, for JavaScript is JS Lint by Douglas Crockford. And Douglas Crockford worked with me at PayPal, and he's a really nice guy. I don't know why people like to make fun of him. He's awesome. But the tool is very opinionated. And I think that put a lot of people off. It was around 10 years before any other tool, but it, it still, it, eventually people got fed up with it being maybe too opinionated. And so they started looking to other tools and JS Hint for a long time filled that gap. Cool. Yeah. We've been using ESLint for a while at work and it's really interesting watching it evolve. There are all these different competing tools for JavaScript. You have Babel to allow you to use a new ES6 and ES7, ES whatever features. And there are things like Flow and TypeScript that add typing to JavaScript. And you end up with this kind of mishmash of a ton of different tools that are all trying to change what your JavaScript looks like. How does ESLint work in this situation where the language itself is evolving and people are always building new things on top of the language that aren't in the language itself? Yeah, it's really hard for contributors like myself because you build something and it works to a certain extent and then all of a sudden a new language feature comes up and all of a sudden it doesn't work. So for example, we have a rule that will check, you know, if you have unused variables and then, well, the language adds destructuring and all of a sudden we weren't accounting for those variables being unused and we had to modify for that or adjust for that. And so it's a tricky process. There's a whole suite of tools. There's a whole suite of tools out there built on Esprima, this parser that was created by um, Adia Hidiat, who created also uh, PhantomJS. And this parser was created in JavaScript to parse JavaScript, and it sort of created this explosion of amazing static analysis tools. And initially, Esprima targeted ES5, and so all the stuff you're talking about just didn't work. And that's kind of where uh, eventually... ESLint decided to fork Esprima and create its own parser called Esprit, which then added ES6 support. And that worked really well. And I, I worked a lot on adding ES6 support to Esprit because I'm really excited about ES6. I also use Babel here at work at PayPal. And we do a lot of fun stuff with ES6. And I was giving talks about ES6. And I had to just, for a while, I was disabling linting. There was no checking on any of those ES6 files. And I felt really silly because you know, I really enjoyed using linting and it's really important. And so we ended up having to, you know, add this, this functionality to a spree. Well, then Babel comes along and decides that it's also going to support candidates for ES 2016 and further experimental functions. And so now even our ES6 support, which made it into a spree, doesn't cut it for, you know, for example, async and await and a lot of the really exciting cutting edge language features that I'm sure you're thinking about using all the time at your cool startup. So what we're having to do and what ESLint did, which I thought was really clever, was they allowed it so that you could swap out the parser. So if you don't want to use a spree, you could punch in the Babel parser. And so the, I think his name's Sebastian from Babel created Babel ESLint, which is basically a custom parser that uses the Babel core stuff and then converts it into a format that works with ESLint. So it is a bit of a trade-off. I think sticking with the core ESLint functionality, which is pretty comprehensive for ES6, works really well. But if you want to use cutting-edge stuff, ES7 or ES2016 and beyond proposals, you can try the Babel ESLint parser. And I think this, this is a great win for ESLint because none of the other Lint tools were able to so quickly adopt these new technologies. 
So we're talking about Esprima now a little bit. Before we go too far, can you go over what an abstract syntax tree is? Because that is used a lot when we're talking about this, and I think maybe not everyone's familiar with that. Just a bit, yeah. I think probably a lot of us aren't familiar with that. I'm a little bit familiar with it. I went to school in environmental planning, and so I learned about a different kind of trees. And <laughs> so when I that's so awesome. When I started caring a lot about rules and linting and code quality, I was quickly really, you know, I sort of hit this point, and and I think in the last couple of years, maybe a lot of people have felt this way that I'd always thought that I could skate by as a UI developer just by knowing about enough about the DOM and enough about CSS and enough about JavaScript to, you know, to build cool things. And I didn't really have to worry about computer science. I thought computer science was for back-end programmers, not even node programmers, like some kind of C++ programmers that I didn't really talk to very often. And what I learned with, you know, a lot of the stuff coming out of React and a lot of stuff coming, frankly, from Angular and a lot of the newest frameworks, basically a lot of stuff coming out of Facebook and Google and big companies that hire a lot of computer science people is that computer science is really relevant to UI engineering. And the way that Esprima works as a parser, it converts the code, the JavaScript code that you might have in a file into a tree. It's called an abstract syntax tree. And it, it's a computer science term that basically refers to, in, in JavaScript, it's just a giant JavaScript object that has nodes in that tree that represent each and every thing that you're doing in that file. So it's really hard to explain without pictures, basically, but it's essentially a data structure that represents the meaning of the code that you have. So if I said var a equals 10, the abstract syntax tree would show me that I have a variable declaration. It would show me then that I was referring to a variable named a, and that I was setting that equal to 10. And, and that would be displayed if you wanted to visualize it as a tree and a tree structure in terms of the data format, a tree, not actually like a Christmas tree, which I think why would is be it, fun. Why is it a tree structure and not just a flat list? If my program is nothing but a series of tokens, why is it that it's represented as a tree for tools like JSHint and ESLint? That's an interesting question. So as far as I understand it, the actually most of our programs have nested structures. So you have a function and then inside that function, there's more things and more things. And so Actually, a tree structure works pretty well. So, or if you have, you know, imagine an if statement, and then inside the if statement, there's the sort of if else conditionals, and it, and it works really well to represent it as a tree. As, as well with the tree, you can skip over things that you don't want. You don't have to go and see this happens, and that happens, and that happens, and that happens. You can look at each node and decide if you want to dive further into that node. So I see a function declaration. Do I want to dive in and see what's happening in that function, or do I want to skip to the next thing that happens? I think no. imagining no. it like just a JavaScript object for people who don't have something in front of them to look at, that's the best way to think of it. Yeah, think of a JavaScript object, and it just has nodes or sub-objects inside that object for every single type of thing that happens. So, you know, you declare a variable, there's something, you have an if statement, there's another object that has contains all the information about what happens inside that if statement. So you turn your programming language into actual code or almost basically JSON that represents the code. And this abstract syntax tree is powerful stuff because once you've converted your code, the human readable code, sort of, with JavaScript, sort of human readable code, into this tree, you can manipulate it using standard computer programming stuff, you know, standard JavaScript, and you can transform that tree into something different and then, you know, regenerate the code from that tree. 
So you might think, why would I do that if I'm not crazy? And the answer is, you would do that a lot. You would do that if you were creating something like Babel, which converts ES6 to ES5. So that reads in an ES6 code into a syntax tree and then takes the representation, the tree of that code and converts it into ES5 output. You also do the same thing if you've ever used Browserify transforms or if you're using Webpack loaders. They take in code, they may convert that into a tree, modify that tree, and then output code again on the other side. It's pretty cool. I feel like it's some kind of wizardry, honestly, manipulating ASTs, because you're really taking something that seems so static. It's the code of your page, and you can actually manipulate it in a safe way and then regenerate code on the other side. It's fantastic. And minification does this too, right? Oh, minification, yeah. So really the good minifiers and really Uglify, I think when Uglify came out, it was this like awesome improvement on minification because it converted your code to an AST, an abstract syntax tree. And then it was able to do such better analysis on what it could collapse or hide or remove or change because it was able to see the whole thing in terms of code instead of just a bunch of strings or tokens uh, as you refer to them. It's much more durable way to manipulate stuff. I want to change the subject a little bit and talk about linters in the abstract. I have a friend who says that he really doesn't like linting because he likes being able to tell who wrote the code. He kind of likes that feel where half of it has semicolons because then you know the person that doesn't use semicolons wrote the other half. What? That's what yeah. Git blame is for. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I think that's kind of facetious, but you could say that linting is limiting your expressiveness and freedom. And Oh and my goodness. Oh my goodness. Code is <laughs> Someone's art. flipping out over there. But the function is the art. The art is the piece where it goes from unorganized mess on the internet into something on somebody's display. That is the art. The way you write your freaking code is not art. If it's JavaScript, write it the JavaScript way. If it's Go, write it the Go way. What? Yeah, what, what I'm getting at is it can feel restrictive, right? And there's definitely... It's not 100% a good thing, right? Nothing is purely amazing right there is some trade-off with saying except you we're gonna except what you oh there is some there's one thing that's 100 percent good yes I, i'm glad <laughs> you think i represent all that is good in the universe thank you <laughs> makes... i didn't say all that was good oh just some. okay but anyways yeah i'll what comment are the, what on are the trade-offs because, because it's this is a really interesting question so you might think like i love vslint and that's true therefore i use it on all my projects and that's not actually true. I like to write sloppy code sometimes and it's fun and I use that on when I'm doing personal projects, you know, I'll, I'll just throw together some sloppy code, it's fast, it's fun, it's cool. Where linting really comes in handy is when you're working with a team. And I take I take issue with your your friend's comment about oh I like to know who's working on what or whatever it may be. I think when you're working with a team, the context switching that can happen if you're trying to look at code that's so radically different from another piece of the same code, it can be extremely jarring. I've dealt with that a lot here at PayPal where we have a lot of people working on a, on our code base. Right now I'm working on the Send Money team. So if you go to Send Money with PayPal and you don't like it, you can come talk to me about it. I'll try and make it better for you. But there's a lot of like, it's a pretty big product and we have a lot of people working on that. There's a whole bunch of different engineers that have different backgrounds. You know, some of them come from a Java background and many are, you know, UI engineers with, they don't have, real intense JavaScript experience. And so we have this huge amount of people, hundreds of people that are working, you know, throughout our code here. 
And yeah, when people come with very different backgrounds and, and write codes in very different styles, it may be interesting from a sort of anthropological point of view or some sort of sociological point of view, but it can be really difficult and the context switching costs are high. I'll give you a specific example of where linting helps a lot. So in Java, it's really common to throw strings. You can throw a string in Java if there's an error and it will handle that nicely for you. That's a common thing. But in JavaScript, we usually throw error objects. We throw error objects because in JavaScript, that will give you a stack trace, both in Node and in most browsers. You'll get a stack trace so you can see where something went wrong. Well, if you throw a string, you're going to be in a lot of trouble in JavaScript. And we ran into this problem in Node where in one of our modules, there was string throwing going on, which is very naughty. And it was really frustrating. And I could easily see how maybe a Java engineer might have thought that was a good idea. And whereas a Lint tool can be really helpful is helping us avoid making really bad mistakes. So there's two aspects to linting, which maybe I'll, I'll talk about now. There's the, can we standardize code style and make sure that people write things that look the same? And then there's, can we catch bad mistakes that people are making? And so there seems to be a separate project for the first one, right? That uh, JS style or something has emerged? So JSCS, yeah. So JSCS. JSCS is a really interesting project in that it tries to let you just like wholesale use an existing style guide. So you can go to the Airbnb style guide and just enable that style guide. And the JSCS project includes the ability to just select one of like 20 different style guides and enforce those style rules in your app. And I think JSCS and ESLint came about at the same time. I think they were both running up into, you know, some issues with JS hints, its limitations, its lack of flexibility, ultimately. And where ESLint started off was Nicholas wanted to be able to allow teams to write custom rules, rules that no one else cared about except for your little team. Maybe you wanted all your variables to start with a dollar sign, or you wanted your team to restrict the usage of jQuery in certain files, or whatever it may be. JS Hint was extremely difficult to change. And ESLint decided to go down the path of, hey, let's make it really easy to allow people to write custom rules. JSCS said, hey, we really want to focus on style rules. And at the time, Anton, who was running the JS Hint project, said, you know what, style rules aren't that exciting to me. I really want to focus on you know, syntax and making sure people aren't writing bugs. And so he sort of said, all right, JSCS, why don't you just sort of take over and do any style stuff? And he started, started sending people that were looking to JSN to do that to JSCS. And so that project really started thriving. And at the same time that ESLint got off the ground. But the thing is, ESLint actually does all the same stuff that JSCS does. It can do all those same style rules, almost every one. And we've just added the ability to do something called extends, where you can extend an existing style guide. So you can npm install some set of rules, and you could extend that rule set locally. So you can basically npm install any style guide out there and start using that. So this is where JSCS is, in some ways, the ESLint folks like me think that JSCS can pretty much be handled with ESLint. They really started with different goals in mind. And, and so I, I totally see why both are successful. They're pretty much equally successful. They're both really popular projects. So I want to go back a little bit to this point. about Yes, let's uh, go back there. <laughs> about people linting, either eliminating your freedom of expression or standardizing, right? I kind of feel like I'm maybe I've got a unique viewpoint here, but I don't think it really does anything it does either because it doesn't i don't feel like it limits my freedom of expression and you know when you're writing code how you write that code the linter 
is such a very, very, very small piece of restriction, it really doesn't take away that much ability to be expressive. So the idea that one, it standardizes the format of code, I think is silly because I don't think a linter can do that with the very, very, very few things that it does. Like I said, you said, you know, whether you got semicolons or you don't have semicolons is such a gross piece of what a person's style is when they write code. Or catching errors, obviously, is entirely different. So I think that's, I find that to be kind of a, almost a nonsensical argument. Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Oh, go ahead. I think I didn't make my point clearly. I was kind of using that as a stand-in for what are the downsides of linting? Or is there anything that gets harder when you start using a linter? I agree that I don't think that's a huge downside to it. But is there a downside to linting? I think is probably my broader Good question. question. What's the downsides to linting? Yeah, or is it just 100% everyone should do it all the time? It will only make everything better. <laughs> you know, I like I said, I, I think it's fun to be sloppy sometimes if you're working on small stuff and just throw something out there and it's kind of fine. Linting adds a certain formality to your code. And there's a setup cost. There's also a cost with regard to the tooling. And you kind of hinted at this earlier, but we've got ESLint plugins for, you know, Atom, and Sublime, and WebStorm. So you can have your linter hooked into there. You may have it as part of your continuous integration setup. We use it with a Grunt plugin with ESLint. But it adds all these extra steps. And, you know, you might start to say to yourself, like, do you really need to block a build because you didn't put a new line above a comment? Like, this level of particularity, it can add overhead to your project and overhead to getting things done. I think it's useful on a team setting. And I think for many small projects, it may be useful if you're sharing that code or you have some, you know, there's some other people depending on your code. But it definitely, for the most part, can, it it adds some overhead in terms of thinking about it. And a lot of people that the way that we have Lint set up, it's it's usually done as a pre-commit hook here. And so a lot of times people will code something in their way and then the pre-commit hook will run, and they'll have to change a bunch of things. And it does add a certain level of frustration. There's also a bit of ego around, I like this rule, so you know, I'm the, the ESLint champion around PayPal, basically, because I think it's fantastic. But I'll decide on a rule, and I'll just set it. And other people might disagree with the choice that I've made. And while, for the most part, most people are cool with it, it can be a little bit of a conflict sometimes. Like, I don't like... I don't know if I didn't like semicolons or maybe I don't like some some way of, of doing something somewhere, especially with stylistic things. Some people really have strong opinions about that stuff. And so it, it can cause conflict. It's not perfect. It's not a panacea. But again, for any time you're working with a team or you're sharing code with other people, I think it's totally essential. Sure. That makes sense. And I would say the biggest problem with linting is the social issue. Like, I've had trouble on the Raspberry Pi. It takes a long time to actually run the Lint process, so I actually turn it off when I'm doing it there because the environment just isn't powerful enough to give me the speed that I want on the feedback loop. There you go. But, like, the social problem of, like, the fights and the arguments and the this is better and that is better, and it's just all so stupid. It's like the purpose of the tool is let's write better code that doesn't break our product for our customers. And it turns into this like, well, I like it when things are purple. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is where actually linting is extremely helpful. So I started when the ES6 support started coming out, I started working on a few rules. For example, like generator star spacing. Let's decide before anyone writes starts writing generators in our project where the star should go. Just because I know someone's going to get mad and they're going to move all the stars to the way they like it. And having the rules in lint it sort of gives us this baseline of like, we don't need to argue about this anymore. 
this is something that's already been decided and there's no complaining about it because it's already in the rule set. So for the most part, I think having a linter actually reduces those arguments because it's already set. One of the biggest downsides I've seen with JS Hint previously and to some extent until recently ESLint is that it didn't cover enough things that people were opinionated about. And so we have rules in our sort of internal style guide around spacing or new lines around comments. But until like probably next week, ESLint isn't going to have that rule. I'm working on it right now to make sure that you have a new line above comments and, and stuff like that. So it helps actually squash a lot of debates and a lot of time that gets wasted on arguing about what the best way things should be. Would you call it a bike shed deterrent? Absolutely a bike shed deterrent. Because people yeah. have these debates anyway. But if you have a rule and you can enforce consistency, I think almost always the argument of consistency is better than not wins the day. Yeah, I care about style, but I care way more about a style being consistent than my personal style. I Like, I'd be willing to do things that I disagree with if everyone does them the same way. Amen. Amen. Right. Right. So, so we've talked a little bit about the disadvantages of linting, uh, trade-offs, I guess you could say. Tell us sure. some of the cool stuff you get because you use a linter. So, for example, I consider linting to be in the category generally of static analysis. And there's all kinds of static analysis tools for different languages and stuff, but some of them can even do crazy stuff like before you even run your code, it can say, hey, you probably have a memory leak here, something like that. Not so much in JavaScript necessarily, but what kind of cool stuff can ESLint do? That's a great question. ESLint can do amazing things, and I think it's really good. And I hope all people will, after the show, just go and download it and replace the other linters. Some of my favorite things that it can do, or at least some of my favorite rules, and this is one that I think... I'm trying to think back. I think it might have actually been inspired by Jameson. He posted something like two years ago on Twitter. Oh, the error about, callback thing. Yes, about how Yeah, this is my great shining contribution to ESLint. It was actually my I shining I complained about something. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, my contribution was getting you to contribute. Yeah, exactly. That's management. Meta, meta, meta contribution. Yeah, so Jameson complains like, oh, it's so annoying. And no, you have to always remember to call back. If, if you have an error from a callback, you're always supposed to check for that error and then return with the callback with that error. And this is something that bites a lot of people. I think there was a recent bug in IOJS, actually, where, where someone had left this out or, or something like that. I've seen it a lot in many projects, and we've had to deal with it before, too. It, it often leads to errors where, for example, in Node, you might try to send your HTTP headers twice and it can crash your express server, for example. So the no callback error rule will check to say, hey, you forgot to handle this error coming back from a callback. You should do something about that. I think that's huge. Another one that I think is really hey, nice. Qu question, oh, how, does, how, how does ESLint know that you are in the node environment and this particular callback is one of those callbacks? You know, I wish it were magic. It's not magic. What we had to do was basically... We had to assume certain things, and you can configure some of this. So, for example, most projects have certain conventions around that they always call an error ERR, or error. And there's actually a rule that lets you try to enforce the naming on this stuff as well. So the no callback error rule, what it'll do is it'll say, if you ever have a function, if you're ever inside of a function, and it takes as the first argument error or error or anything similar to that or E, it will assume that that's an error. And if you don't do anything with that, if you if it goes to the function, it looks at the syntax tree and says, was this error variable ever used within this function? And we can't tell like that you used it properly, but we can say you at least tried to handle the error. You at least did something with it. You read through it. You sent it somewhere. You console you, logged it. You console. You did something. Like you weren't <laughs> ignoring the error. 
And if you weren't ignoring the error, we assume we're pretty happy with that. We say, okay, you're intelligent enough to realize that this could lead to problems if you just ignore the error. And so we were able to handle that. So I think it's pretty cool. It uses, you know, it's the AST stuff. It goes through, it says, all right, did we ever use this identifier? It looks for an identifier, which just means like basically a variable being used and it matches it to the function arguments, the function parameters and says, okay, you have a function parameter. It's the first one, which is the standard callback pattern in Node. If it's E or error or several of these common ones, it will then check if it's being used inside the function. It's pretty cool. That kind of reminds me of theme with last week's show. We talked a little bit about Rust and how it's this language that encodes these best practices about systems programming into the language. So instead of having to learn C and then learn, like, you know, the language C and never, ever do this giant long list of things that you can do in C in a real program. It's kind of the same with Node. So the reason I complained about that error is we had some new Node programmers who ended up making that mistake just because they weren't familiar with the environment. And it's cool to see tooling encode knowledge because it's a lot more scalable to spread that knowledge to people than with someone saying, hey, don't do that. Absolutely. Some of the other ones I, I'll just throw out there that I, I thought were pretty cool. Some of the other rules that, that enforces not throwing a literal. So you can never throw a string if you enable this rule. And another one is no restricted modules. So I don't know how many of you out there use underscore and Lodash, but I've noticed that a lot. <laughs> Probably more of you than you think. Probably all of you do this. And so with no restricted modules, you could just say like, all right, we're banning Lodash or we're banning underscore. Like just pick one because it's so unnecessary to have two different versions of essentially a module that does almost the exact same thing in the project. And I think all of these things enforce consistency and they help projects be more successful. There's tons of rules in there. It's almost kind of annoying. This is maybe one of frustrations I have with ESLint. It's that there's so much interesting stuff in there. Sometimes I don't even know. And like I contribute to the project. I don't even know all the things that it can do for me. And I'll be frustrated about something and I'll ask about it. And someone will like say, yeah, we've had a rule about that for a while. Like I gave a talk about how frustrated I was with people throwing strings in JavaScript and how to write a custom rule to do that. Simultaneously, someone also had already contributed that rule to the project, and I didn't even know about it. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> so I might have missed something. Is this like there's a repository of rules? Is that what you're saying? Oh, well, let me tell you how ESLint works internally. How about that? Not too okay. deep, but a little bit deep. So first, I'll start off by explaining a little bit about how we talked about how it uses a parser. It uses a spree, which is basically a little bit like a Sprema, basically the same thing as a Sprema with some fancy new stuff. And what it'll do is it'll take your code, it'll convert it with a spree into a syntax tree, and then it'll pass that syntax tree to each of these different rule files. So each rule is just a self-contained file. So within the project itself, you might have a rule that says no console, okay? And we'll pass the syntax tree into the no console rule. The no console rule will then look through that syntax tree for anyone calling console.log or anything like that. And we'll report back those warnings. And then the ESLint will then go to the next file, meaning the next rule file, pass the syntax tree into that file, and so on and so forth. So each rule is a separate file. And so it's pretty straightforward how people can create new rules for the project. In addition to ESLint itself having a huge list, maybe 50 or 100 rules itself that it enforces or allows people to turn on or off if they use ESLint, you can also npm install new rules. So you can create an ESLint plugin very simply 
And there's a great ecosystem of rules for ESLint with thousands of downloads. There's a whole bunch of rules specifically around JSX and React. There's a, a very popular Angular plugin for ESLint that provides a whole bunch of additional rules for Angular. And so there's tons of additional rules out there. And so it's hard to keep an eye on the whole thing, right? If I wanted to do a rule for something, it's very likely someone else created it somewhere else. That's interesting. So, <laughs> in some ways, using ESLint feels like you get some of the comfort you get from a statically typed language with the compiler. I know by default, it, it makes sure that you define stuff before you use it. So you can't just have implicit globals. It makes sure that you don't have unused variables. And I know that I've had so many bugs in my JavaScript code from switching two letters around and just mistyping a variable or a function name or something. So it feels great. Yeah, so here's one thing to throw a wrench in um, your happy feelings. ESLint 1.0 is coming out pretty soon, and one of the things that the project is doing is actually turning off all the rules by default. So, oh, sweet. Happy feelings gone. That's so terrible. Yeah, so this is still being discussed, and obviously we love input from people, but I think the idea is that basically... So many teams are having to just calm, calm down. We have ways, right? So there's going to be, there's this extends mechanism. So if, if you want to just add all the default rules, you just say extends default or whatever the syntax would be. Or you can extend maybe some other, you know, Google style guide or whatever like that that you choose. But the basic idea is that so many people have so many ways they want to customize things. And ESLint has sort of promised that we're trying to be flexible. It's trying to be this flexible thing. We're not trying to enforce any one rule or another on you. And there's a lot of rules that are turned on by default that I don't really agree with. Like there's this one called no mixed requires. And some people feel strongly that you shouldn't have a require block. You mean like a variable declaration block of requires that also does other things. And I, I don't care. Like I, I don't understand why that's turned on by default. And so with this, change. Basically, all the rules are going to be off. You can turn them back on with just one configuration change, or you can then, you know, customize it to your heart's content. The only trick there that I've, you know, am dealing with is I don't know what I need. And so there's so many options that it will be a little bit tricky to sort of steer people in the right direction if they're not on top of everything. What happened to the idea of reasonable defaults, though? When I want a tool, I don't want to have to go in and configure everything. I just want it to be like, Here's what 99% of sane normal people need. And if you are doing something way awesome, then like know that you need to change this to make your awesome sauce magic potion so, work. I can't speak for the ESLIN team to answer that, but I do have a question about that. Is it because there are now so many versions of JavaScript out there that it would be impossible to choose a default that applies to even a simple majority of developers? Like, for example, ES5, ES6, now ES7. JSX, things like that? I think uh, in some ways your guess is as good as mine, but th there are so many competing ideas out there. And so, so many people are so frustrated with how the defaults are. We feel like it's too opinionated, or why didn't you turn on this rule? And so, I think it's okay to say, you know what? Everything's off by default. There's sort of the ESLint recommended rule set. You can enable that if you'd like. But it's no longer going to be enabled by default. And, you know, it, it'll add a tiny bit of configuration, one extra line of configuration, but so many people are going to feel like they are not being pushed to go a direction they don't want to go. This also helps people, for example, when a new rule comes online, they automatically get that new rule, and then all of a sudden it starts breaking their build because they didn't know to turn off a rule that was going to be enabled later. This has happened to us probably seven times at PayPal, where we've had, you know, Everything is passing ESLint. ESLint does an upgrade. 
all of a sudden there's a tweak to an existing rule, it gets a little stricter, or there's an additional rule that's added and turned on by default, and all of a sudden our build breaks. And we didn't necessarily know that we were opting in to every new rule that came down the line. So there is a trade-off there. I think the new, you know, it's starting off with a blank slate. Now, not, it won't do nothing. You know, of course it will, it will check for syntax errors, the most egregious things that will basically break the parser will still be checked. Um, but if you want to opt in to any of the rule sets or anything like that, you'll have to do that manually. It I sounds just... kind of like there are kids fighting in the back of the car. Like, I want this rule on. I want this rule off. And then Nicholas was like, don't make me turn this car around, kids. <laughs> and then he turned the car around, and now there are no rules on by default. No rules for anyone. Are you happy? <laughs> you got what you wanted, kids. Yeah, just, we're not going that, to Disneyland. That's just so sad to me because, like, for the most part, you've got... 99% of JavaScript developers have no idea what they're doing because they're part of the 99% of developers who <laughs> aren't actually developers, right? Like everybody plays with JavaScript. Yeah. And so my thought is always on how do you help the most people? Because the people that are super opinionated and doing crazy things, like they can figure it out. Like, oh, wow, it takes them, you know, two seconds to look at a documentation page. But for like the other 99% of people where it's like, oh man, this would have been so helpful if on day one I'd got this set up well, and then my code wouldn't break all the time. I wouldn't have all still, these errors. They can still do that. It's just, it's one line of config saying, give me the defaults, right? But then they have to, it's more that you have to know. It's more that the person who's getting into it for the first time, that's where they my already, problem is. They already let's, took let's the step into installing a linter. A <laughs> yeah, they've already. It's a pretty big deal. My thought is that ESLint, I hope I don't misrepresent Nicholas or the project at all. I feel like it's a tool for professionals, right? This is a tool for experienced professionals that are trying to improve things. This is not necessarily a tool for a beginner to go and configure and install. It should work easily for a beginner. It should be easy to work there. But it's really a tool for professionals. And I think that treating our user base as professionals is not going to end up as a mistake. I don't think we're going to regret assuming some level of competence with the people that are using the tool. I know that it's going to create issues. People are going to be concerned about things. But ultimately, the basic linter with nothing turned on will at least check for syntax errors, really, you know, really intense problems with the code. And it'll be very easy to opt into one of many style guides. I think that'll actually be really cool and help people feel more confident about the tool. You know, just yesterday I was checking out some of the issues and, you know, I know people contribute to open source a lot and they don't necessarily understand like how much work it is to maintain these projects. And I just do a couple hours a week on ESLint related stuff, probably like two hours a week. But, you know, I know Nicholas and some of the other contributors give a lot more time. And when people come in, I mean, just, just recently there was an issue open and someone complained, you know, I thought this was supposed to be an unopinionated framework. You know, this is just as bad as Douglas Crockford's JS Lint tool because I don't like that there's not an option to configure X, Y, or Z exactly the same way. And it's, you know, I took that initially and I read that I was so frustrated. I'm like, you know what? People are donating hundreds of hours of time. Like they're not jerks. They're really, really nice people. They're working really hard to create a, a tool that's useful for everyone. You know, and eventually I realized, you know, hey, this person's not familiar with the project. They don't understand. But ultimately, the expectation for them is that in, in, in one of the selling points of ESLIN is that this is truly a flexible tool. It's a tool to help your project be the way that you want your project to be. It's not trying to help your project be the way that Nicholas wants your project to be or, you know, Crockford wants your project to be. This is a project for you as a professional to configure the project in just the way that you want your team to have your project. I think it's a great option. Just anecdotally, the way that our team uses ESLint is there's an option to just dump out the configuration into a JSON that includes every single rule. If I understand correctly, 
your config file can just list the rules that you want to manipulate. But I th- yes. there's a way to just dump out all of the rules and then change those. And that's what we do, just because we want to have control over it. And that's why we use ESLint. I think that's pretty common. That's what we do here at PayPal as well. That leads me to a good question. So I am, like many people, a lazy and terrible engineer. And okay. I have a large JavaScript code base with no linting. How do I get started? My experience has been with other projects that when you try to do this with an older code base, it's very hard to sift through the thousands of errors that you're inevitably going to generate. How do you get through that over the hump and into the nice, productive, green, beautiful grass fields? That is a fantastic question. So we do this with this a lot. So we often find little coves of code that were hiding out that hadn't applied any lint rules. One of those caves of uncompliant code was in our unit testing. So we weren't testing one of our subfolders within our unit test directory. And there were hundreds of files in this folder. And when we sort of discovered that it was missing, we were doing a, you know, a look through our files. We found this whole subfolder that wasn't being linted. We said, oh, let's turn on our standard lint rules for this subfolder. And when we added it to the list of folders that were getting linted, I think that we found maybe several thousand errors. You know, Because within that project, within those files people were using, double quotes and single quotes. You know, they were returning without curly braces around their if statements. And they were doing so many different things. And, and it was completely inconsistent. So I couldn't turn on the rules one way or another, because it would ultimately, like not work either way. So here's what we ended up doing. And here's what I'd recommend. Try to lend as much of your code as you can to a really high standard, but you can create a separate config file for a different part of your code base that may be a little bit less strict. So in our case, we created an ESLint RC file. We put it at the base of that folder, which ESLint will then apply these new rules over the base rules. And what this list did, what the sub list is, is it it set everything from error mode, which is in, in the configuration, it's it's two for error or one for warning. So it warned on the things that were really bad that we actually cared about people fixing. We disabled rules that were, while in our normal code base, we'd, we'd prefer that people had chosen one or the other that we didn't actually care enough to enforce it in this particular directory. So we we disabled a whole bunch of rules. But all the rules that we cared about, that we hoped people would fix, we'd set to one as warned. So when people went and updated those files, they ran their linter. Well, it didn't break the build or stop them. They would see that there was a problem. And eventually, we created you know stories in our backlog of things to do to eventually go up and clean up any of the things that were warning. And then once we fixed those warnings, we turned the rules on to error so that if anyone went back and broke those rules again, they'd be prevented from doing so. So you can do it in a step-by-step process, but the ESLint RC file, you can put that in. It's just basically a JSON file with all your rules. You put that in a folder and you can relax rules or set things from instead of actually, you know, breaking your build, you can set them to just warn instead. And that seemed to work pretty well for us. Any other thoughts? What are some of the errors I'm likely to hit first and how do I get around them? Like, get around them is an interesting you know, way to put it. How do I make ESLint shut up? No, I'm just kidding. Like, I like you know, do you have yeah, any so, examples from so, so a lot of basic things, people will have different ways of using quotes, semicolon usage, the way that they're doing their if statements and return statements, triple equals versus double equals. You know, these are things that, you know, kind of famous stuff that have come around from JSLint. They've made it through JSHint. They're still around. Like a lot of these old rules are still important. and you know, where you're putting your curly braces, things like this. And and so a lot of these are default rules that a lot of linters are going to catch. And you will probably run into some problems on your code base with those. And 
A lot of them, though, and this is where some a tool that, that ESLint doesn't have right now, which other projects are starting to adopt, is this auto-fixer. So it'll just automatically update your styles to look in a certain way. I think that's a really cool wow. thing because that will fix a lot of problems. I think JSCS is working on something like that. I think JS Hint maybe has something or, or there's some other projects that do that. So you could feed in some kind of rules and it will try, you know, for example, things like indentation, quotation marks, curly braces, where you're putting them, all that stuff. There are some tools out there that let you automatically fix that. But, you know, at some point, it's like, I don't know if it's worth the cost if you're looking at hundreds of files that are sort of old files, you're not working on them actively. I usually like to update things when I'm working on them rather than just going through wholesale and changing old things because I don't want to break stuff. Going forward, like you have plugins, I assume, for all the different editors as well, right? Like other projects do? Yeah. Yeah, we have plugins. I use um, WebStorm, and there's a WebStorm plugin, or it's built into WebStorm ESLint support. But I know there's plugins for Atom, Sublime, Vim, pretty much everything else out there. And it, it works well for people, generally. We had a problem on our team where some people were using WebStorm, some people were using Vim, and all the people that were using WebStorm, it was like automatically putting spaces and everything, and it just makes looking at the code review a pain in the butt. So when we started using Linting, it helped with that sort of thing. Yeah, that's, Amy, that's a great point. I think a lot of the tools we use, and especially if the team uses a lot of different tools, and most teams do, the, the tools themselves can have very different defaults. And so one thing that I've seen is that projects of sufficient size may offer, they, they may actually include, for example, with WebStorm, I think it's a .idea file. You can, you can yeah. include that in your project that may include certain rules about formatting or, you know, maybe VimRC files or different files like that, config files that will allow people on different tools to end up with similar results. I think that could be helpful because it is pretty annoying when people using different tools end up with different results. And then, you know, for, for them as well, even, even if it's caught with a linter, it still can be frustrating because it's annoying to have to redo something that you've already you know, built. May tabs disappear one day? <laughs> I don't think so. I, as far as I can tell, <laughs> tabs are going. Doesn't Go use tabs? Is that, is that true? I don't know of anything that uses tabs yes. except yes, for one and- and GoFMT forces it, and it's freaking beautiful. Go yeah. uses tabs? It forces you oh, no. to use tabs. It's not optional. Well, at least they force you to. It, Go, yeah. Go basically has a linter built in to the language. Not the language per se, but thanks to GoFMT, you just, a lot of these discussions just never come up. And that's, that's Which beautiful. Which is nice. That's beautiful. Even, I, I hate tabs, but, you know, if it works and everyone does it and there's no question of this editor or that editor, I'm all for it. Hey, so I've got a question for the, the group here. Uh, hold on. It doesn't work that way. Sorry. <laughs> nope. Uh, <laughs> this is how it works. Have me on your show. So is there one thing, is there one rule you would love to see in a linter or something that bugs you in code that you wish could be caught automatically? Yes. What, what rule <laughs> I are we missing? I have a dumb thing. You, Jameson, you go first. Dumb thing first. The most contentious technical discussions I've ever had have been over aligning equals signs. Just so stupid. <laughs> what? I am also so stupid. So <laughs> so if there was a rule that could say, align all your equal signs or don't align them, then I would turn that on and the discussion would end. And my life would be happier. See, I don't think the discussion <laughs> ends, though, because when I've been in that... Clearly not. The, the it goes into a gorilla discussion. <laughs> yes. The back channels then. Oh, okay, can we do mine? All right, starts. come on. What are the rules? Okay, that's pretty cool, Jameson. I think you're crazy, but I, I bet we could get some. What about the point. next line commas? Is there 
rules about that. Next line commas. So you're the talking about comma, comma first? Yeah. Yeah, comma first. I'm pretty sure we already we already do that. I'm pretty sure. I can I can well, double check for you. Is this just like a throwdown where you're like, give me your best shot, we'll see if we already do it. <laughs> no, because You know what it is? It's whatever I'm doing now, but I need it to be a rule in six months when I decide it's really stupid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that's no, along the lines I'm, of my suggestion. So here's mine. One of my biggest problems is that I often find bugs after they go to customers. Could ESLint just tell me when I'm writing a bug while <laughs> I'm writing it? Yeah! No, that actually is what ESLint does. ESLint will help you find your bugs. And if you're having trouble with it helping you find your bugs, you should write a custom rule that will help you find that bug. I think that's where I've found the most value with ESLint is, for us, it's usually a crash in production. Hey, we have a crash on our servers in production because we did something dumb. Okay, now let me go write, let me spend a day and a half and write an ESLint rule that will not let us do that anymore. Because we have millions of customers and they get mad when they can't send money to their friends and family and everyone else. And so it's really important for us to prevent these bugs. And so ESLint lets us write our own rules so that, you know, no one else cares about half the rules that I have in the system because we have our own big plugin with a bunch of PayPal specific rules, but they help us from making mistakes we've made before, which is where I think it's a huge benefit. Amy, what about you? You got any pet rules you'd like to see? I was trying to think about that. No, you better skip me. I like Jameson's. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. AJ, got anything? No. no. I'm, I'm happy with rules existing and them being the only, yeah. They need to exist and they need to be really easy so that when somebody's got some thing I've never heard of before on their GitHub, it's got to be super easy for me to like use it with them or whatever so I can just contribute to the project and not worry about I put the semicolon in the wrong place for them. Word. Oh, ooh, I did just come up with one. Oh, I don't know. It? This one would be pretty, this one might be, well, it probably wouldn't be that bad. When you have a list of variables alphabetizing them, I'm one of those people. <laughs> what? Ooh, I go by length order. Is that for or pro, Amy? For alphabetizing. Or, yeah. for <laughs> for alphabetizing. <laughs> we'll, we'll do one where it has to be reverse alphabetical, just for my purposes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so what about... Oh, what? it's just like when you have like a list of like 30 in a row and there's all over the place. It, like, oh, how about a maximum nuts. list size? How about <laughs> more than five yeah, variables to be given functions go? <laughs> There's your problem. Yeah, or, the, uh, Amy, or just the can... package JSON. Like, oh my god, that drives me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> you can make that rule, Amy, and I'll help you if you need help. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, I love ESLint. Does anyone else have any more questions for me, or I'll just start blabbing on about things I like about it more? I think that we're probably running out of questions. This is probably a good time for us to start moving over to picks and wrap this bad boy up. Is there um anything really important about ESLint that we didn't cover, Jamin, before we end the show? Oh, I feel so sad that it's coming to an end, but I understand <laughs> um, these things must happen. I would say this. If you have something you want to be linted and you have some ideas about, I guess if you have a rule that you want, I'll always check NPM first. You can type ESLint plugin on the NPM search, and there's tons of plugins for Happy, for React, for you know all sorts of various things that you might care about. And yeah, and, and the second thing I would say is we love contributions. We love people suggesting new rule ideas or if they want help creating rules that are specific for their team. We have a Gitter chat. We have, you know, obviously our GitHub where you can post issues. And it's a pretty cool group of people that are contributing to the project. And we certainly love your uh, opinions and ideas. But try to be nice if possible because we're all tired. Awesome. Well, let's move on to picks. AJ, would you like to go first? Yeah, I'll go. All right, so first I'm going to pick again 
Mozilla. I really like them. And they had an article that solved one of my problems. So I was complaining on a previous episode about UTF-8 and binary conversion. And they actually have some tools in their wiki that has sample code that will correctly figure out, even if it's an in-byte Unicode character or UTF-8 character, it'll sort it all out and give it to you in a typed array. And that made me happy. All right. Amy, do you want to go next? Sure. I have two again this week. The first one is a video that I watched a while back, and it's a guy who he created a game in JavaScript, and it's kind of just about how he thinks that the direction we're going with user interfaces is that they're more and more like game development. So he just talks about some patterns in there that you'd want to use that he learned from building this game that you'd want to use in UIs. And then my second pick, I think I picked a Headspace app a while ago, and this was another one from that talk at NGConf on meditation and mindfulness, but I started reading the book. It's called Search Inside Yourself, which just sounds like a really, I don't know, lovey-dovey title, and I'm not into that kind of stuff, but the book is pretty good. It's by an engineer at Google, so I like the fact that like written by an engineer, so I knew that the title wasn't going to be too, like, lovey-dovey. <laughs> Anyways, those are my two picks this week. Fantastic. Dave, how about you? Okay, a couple of picks for you today. I think this the first one has been mentioned on the show before, but it's a really fun YouTube show called Good Mythical Morning. I, I think some of the panelists are watchers of the show occasionally. Uh, good wholesome fun, good funny guys, Rhett and Link. You've probably heard of them from other YouTube ventures, and I uh, quite enjoy them. Good family watching, too. If you have kids, the kids laugh, I laugh, and it's just fun to laugh together. My second pick is actually my home city, my Salt Lake City. If you are looking for a cool place to visit, I was just looking around this weekend and uh, realizing how much how beautiful it is here and how fun it is. I got to go on a really long bike ride this week around the valley, and uh, it's just glorious. So uh, I'm going to pick the entire city of Salt Lake City. And that's all I have for you. Awesome. I think that covers everybody important on the panel. Ugh, no. What? <laughs> no. I'm important. Wait, I forgot. I meant the less important ones on the panel. Oh, and now for the most you. important picks. Thank you. Uh, Jameson, how about you? I have two picks. One is a YouTube video of B.B. King playing in Sing Sing Prison in the 70s. He was a famous blues guitarist that passed away recently. And so I've, I've been watching a ton of his stuff lately. And it is amazing. He just like tears the roof off the place. It's so good. The other thing is something called JSON Server. It is basically a fancy REST API wrapped around a static JSON file. And it's perfect if you're just building some kind of UI demo that you need an API to back up with. You can just npm install it, and then it'll let you post stuff and put it in a JSON file. And I don't know, it just takes care of things magically for you. I found a dearth of good APIs for demos, so this is a really easy way to make your own. Those are my picks. Awesome. All right, I'll go next. I'm going to have two picks. The first one is for anybody out there who happens to have a significant other who loves things like Jane Austen, but you yourself happen not to. If so, I have a movie for you to definitely that you will, I hardly believe that you will enjoy and will win points with your significant other. It's called Austen Land. That's a good one. Yeah, an amazingly hilarious movie. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's just so funny. I myself happen to have very little interest in anything Jane Austen, 
And when my wife rented this movie for Valentine's Day, I was vehemently against it and ended up laughing and enjoying that movie. Recently rewatched it, watched it several times. Love the movie. So that's my pick is Austin Land. Hilarious movie. And then I have another pick. I just saw the preview for the Supergirl series that's going to go on CBS, I believe, in the fall. And I'm picking it out of hope that it's good because I'm worried that it won't be good. And I would like it for it to be good. So I'm picking it in hopes that it will be good. And that's my last pick. Jamin, you're up. Yeah, so lately I've been reading this book about science. I actually got it like 10 years ago, and I've been reading it in it for 10 years because I'm a really slow reader. But it's called A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson. It's a super cool book. It talks about how all the scientists know all the things that they know, and it's really cool. The second pick that I'll throw out there, The Book of Mormon, the actual book version. It's great. It's totally inspiring. I love it. That's it for me. Fantastic. Well, thanks a bunch for being on the show, Jamin. We really appreciate it. It was a great episode, and appreciate you coming on to talk about ES Lint. And thanks, everybody else. And thanks to audience for tuning in. We'll see you next week. See ya. Bye. Later. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 